Um, we are in our fourth week of our series, Golden Oldies, and um, we've got a couple of, of great weeks coming up that I want to just whet your appetite and, and tell you about. First, right after next Sunday, the 17th, remember we're not going to be on the 17th, on the 24th, we're going to do something that very few churches dare to do. As a matter of fact, this is an issue that, you know, a lot of people leave churches because the eldership allows this to happen. But I want you to know that on the 24th of this month, not this Sunday coming, but the following one, my wife is going to be speaking on Esther on Sunday morning. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited about that. I really am. She's going to have a good word to share, and uh, you're going to be blessed by it. The following weekend, uh, Ryan Stevens is going to be ending off our series, Golden Oldies, um, and he is going to be talking on Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, and God confronted them and told them, or asked them the question, who told you you were naked? So I just want to read this, this little blurb to you, um, and this is what you can expect in terms of how he wants you to respond. He says, Satan tells us lies that we initially deny or, deny or struggle against, but over time we begin to internalize them. We allow them to shape the reality of our lives and dictate our actions. We ask ourselves, hiding in the bushes, because, all because over time we have believed a lie that isn't consistent with the way that we are viewed by our Heavenly Father. What lies have you believed? Who told you you were too big, too small, not smart enough, not good enough, etc.? Are you letting these lies dictate your life? Take some, take some time to seek out God over the next couple weeks and fill in the blank below and then send me your answers at ryans at changepointnea.com. He wants to use your examples as part of his sermons and promises that he will not use your identity because he doesn't want to embarrass anyone. So what question would, would God ask you regarding your shame? Who told you you were what? Okay, so that's the way we're going to end the series. Please, every one of us in here have a story. Um, Ryan would love to hear your story. All right. Again, Golden Oldies, week four. I want you to join me in Jonah chapter one. Jonah chapter one. We're going to visit the story of Jonah today. Golden Oldies really is our, um, our, our walk through the Old Testament, taking a look at some of the Old Testament examples of God's faithfulness to his people. But not only that, but we're also in this series exploring God's passion for all people of all nations. God wants every person from every walk of life to come into deep, meaningful, enjoyable relationship with him. I chose Jonah because I believe Jonah's story is all of our story. There's something in the story of Jonah that resonates with each one of us. All right. So before I go into the text, I want to set you up by saying a couple things. I'm not going to, as I do sometimes when I teach uh, expositorily, I'm not going to go through verse by verse, but we are going to cover all four chapters, all right? And some I'm going to paraphrase, some I'm just going to talk about, and some of the verses I'm going to read, you'll be able to follow along with me, all right? Let me set some context for you. 
before we go into the scripture. This book, Jonah, was written somewhere around 860 B.C. At the time that this book was written, Assyria was one of, if not the major power in the Middle East, and Nineveh was one of its major cities. Assyrian culture, make no mistake, was a pagan culture. And for Jonah, it represented everything that, that Israel hated and considered evil. When the Assyrians, as a conquering nation, came to a community or a town or, or a, a, a nation to conquer, they were vicious and they were brutal. Now, I know that this is a family service, but I just want to set some context for you, okay? They often massacred and humiliated their enemies. The Assyrians mutilated their captives, often dismembering them or, or decapitating them or even burning them alive at the stake. And Jonah knew firsthand, he had firsthand knowledge of, of how the Assyrians had committed these atrocities against his own people. And so Jonah hated the Assyrians. And on top of that, he knew that the Assyrians posed a very real threat to the national security of Israel. A little side journey, as a matter of fact, it was less than 100 years later that the Assyrians would conquer the northern tribes of Israel and overtake them, overthrow them, and take them captive. And so, again, Jonah knew that the Assyrian nation posed a real threat to his people, and he didn't want anything to do with them. So now you can imagine Jonah's displeasure when God commanded him to go to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance to the Assyrians. As a matter of fact, Jonah would do just the opposite. Jonah would decide that rather than obey God, that he would rebel and not deliver the message that God wanted him to deliver because he didn't want to see the Assyrian nation repent. His only wish was to see God's full wrath be poured out on Nineveh and on these people. It's interesting about this story. You don't see Jonah arguing with God about this mission. You don't hear him having a debate, a debate about, you know, why I should go or why I shouldn't go. He simply gets up and he turns and he runs. It's, it's really an act of, of in-your-face rebellion and disobedience to the command that God gave him. Nineveh was about 500 miles east of where Jonah was currently. And so Jonah decides to head to Tarshish, which is about 2,000 miles away to the west. All right. As far he wanted to go to the furthest west city that he could possibly think of. OK. So what can we learn from Jonah? What lessons can we can we glean from this man's life? Here's the first. When it comes to, to fulfilling or completing God's call on our life, resistance is futile. <laughs> Some of y'all Trekkies know I got that for right. Resistance is futile. Look at chapter one. Let's go to chapter one of Jonah. Are you there? I'm reading out of the ESV, so mine will sound a little different than yours. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of... Amitai, saying, Arise. Remember that word, arise. We're going to get back to that. And go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out. Remember that? We're going to come back to that, too. Against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and fled to 
Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. I don't know what Jonah was thinking. First of all, how do you think that you can get away from the presence of the Lord? David tells us that it is impossible to hide from the presence of the Lord. I want you to flip back on your Bibles to the left to Psalms 139. Psalms 139. Let's look at what David says about fleeing the presence of the Lord. Are you there? Psalms 139, drop down to to verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. He says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah was about to experience the hand of God on him trying to flee. He was about to experience that firsthand. Now, I've got a confession I need to make to you. Um, Your pastor is not scared of very much, you know, but I have this healthy respect for deep water. I mean, and I've tried my best to overcome this fear. I've got out in the middle of the ocean with floats on, flippers and goggles on the mask. Yeah, I had the whole thing. I mean, I was like buoyant as can be, and I'm still hyperventilating. I'm just scared of the water, man, right? Um, and, and, and I've tried everything to overcome this fear, but I just can't. I, I just, it's just a phobia. And for those of you who like deep sea fishing, I'll go deep sea fishing with you. But if you get close to me on the edge of the boat, I can't tell you what might happen. You know, because I, 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 just, I just don't like the deep water. So imagine, if you will, about a month ago, Pelzetta and I are watching this movie. It's really a good movie. There's only like five to ten words spoken in the, in the whole movie. Robert Redford is the star, and the movie is called, um, no, where is it at? All is Lost. Anybody seen that movie? Okay, I see somebody seen it. It's, it's not a bad movie. You should get it. But it's about this guy that's an expert seaman. It's based on a true story. And he finds himself in peril out in the middle of the ocean, right? And he's got a hole in his boat. He patches the boat because he's an expert seaman. He's not tripping, right? Nothing rattles this guy. But he encounters this incredible storm, right? And And the storm keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So he finds himself in the middle of this crazy, crazy storm. So he locks the boat down. Right. And he just figures he's going to hunker in for the ride. But it gets worse and worse and worse. So finally he realizes, hey, look, man, you know, my sails are up on the mast. And so I've got to pull my sails off or else the boat's going to capsize. Now, this is one of the I can't tell you the last time my wife is laughing. I can't tell you the last time I literally screamed at the screen at the screen. (laughs) 
Man, when that dude opened up that boat, that, that thing, and all the water started coming, I said, no, what are you doing? You know, I mean, I'm sucked into this movie, right? I'm like, no! You know, he's out there, he falls into the water, you know, he's trying to get the, the sails off, and he gets the main one, but he can't get the other one. He's about to lose his life. So he crawls back in the boat. Oh, this is the part that got me here, man. I just, I, so he's in the boat, and the boat is tossing him all around, right? And all of a sudden, the boat turns upside down and capsizes. And he lands on the bottom of the boat, and he's looking out the window, and it is the abyss. And I am freaking out. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. This is crazy. So when I read the story of Jonah, I put myself... I put myself in the story and I think, what would I be thinking? Even if I was an expert seaman, what would I be thinking? So now let's go back to Jonah chapter one and let's pick it up in verse four. What are y'all laughing about? You know a brother can't swim, man. Listen to this. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the boat threatened, the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Now listen, man, these cats were expert seamen. So you know it had to be bad if they, got, if they were afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. But then Jonah, Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the boat, the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. So the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise. Everybody say arise. Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to, to, there you go, will give thought to us that we may not perish. <laughs> he says, arise, sleeper. Now, Jonah's down in the middle of the boat. He's asleep, right? And he's not sleep like Jesus was asleep when he got caught in the midst of the storm and his disciples and they had to wake him up. Jesus was asleep because he was exhausted from the work that he had done. Jonah was fatigued because of the mental anxiety, anxiety that he felt stemming from his guilty conscience. He had a guilty complex. And so he wanted to get away and isolate, so he went down to the inner part of the ship where he thought he'd be safe and secure. He stoles away in the ship's cabin and lays down, sleep, unconscious of the danger. And so the boat goes into peril. Now watch this now. I find this ironic that this captain, this, this, this captain that would be considered a heathen, right, he calls to the preacher to pray. And in doing so, the captain uses the same two words that God had used earlier when he told Jonah to go. Listen to what the captain says. He says, listen, arise. That means get up. He says, and call out. That word translated in the Greek means preach. He is telling Jonah couldn't have missed this. There's no way that he would have missed this irony that this guy in the time of peril is telling him the same thing that God had instructed him to do before he jumped on that ship. You guys follow me? Hmm. So now let me let me just read, read a little further. Told you that's water. 
<laughs> so watch this now, verse 7. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots so we might know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lots fell on Jonah. Let me tell you about lots. Lots were stones, like they were flat stones. And they had, each side had a different color. One side had a light color. The other side had a dark color. Right. And so they would cast lots and whoever's turn it was, they'd cast a lot at them. Right. And then if if a light side and a dark side came up, they'd have to cast it again. If two dark sides came up, you were innocent. If two light sides came up, you were guilty. So through the process of elimination, as they cast these lots, they determined that Jonah was guilty. Hmm. Watch this. So they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. In other words, man, what did you do? Why are we going through this peril? What is your occupation? What do you do? And, and where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you from? And then Jonah says this. He says, listen, he says, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, listen, it is obvious that these men had already heard about the God of Israel. They weren't they weren't strangers to the God of Israel. So when Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew and I serve the God who made the sea and the dry land, he was he was going back to the creation. Back in Genesis chapter one, verses nine through ten, where the Bible says in the creation that God separated the land from the sea and he called the, the water sea and he called the land, the dry land, land. God did this. God created this. This is the God that Jonah served. Jonah makes this reference. And the people get fearful because they recognize that Jonah's God is in control of their fate, of their fate. Right. So then the men became exceedingly afraid and said to him, what have you done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And so they said, what do we need to do, man? Jonah says, hey, man. He says, cast me into the sea. Throw me overboard. He said, because the waves are becoming more and more tempestuous. Throw me overboard. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea because then the sea will get quiet for you. Now, you imagine this now. All this is taking place while the boat is breaking up. Right. And so now these guys are wondering, what happens if we toss this guy overboard? Will this same God that is angry because he's on the boat become more angry if we toss him off? <laughs> on the horns of a dilemma. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not for the, tea, for the sea grew more tempestuous against them. So therefore they called out to the Lord, Lord, please, please be getting ready to throw this cat over. Please do not lay this to our charge. <laughs> so they picked up Jonah <laughs> and they hurled, man, I can't read this story without, I can't read this story without thinking about modern times. Like if we was on the boat and think about it now, if we was on the boat and it was about to capsize, it's breaking up and you cast lots or whatever we do modern day and you know, and it fell on somebody and they admitted they were guilty and they said, throw me overboard. You know what you'd be thinking, right? <laughs> Get off my boat. Sorry, dude. It's, it's done, right? Okay, now, now. Y'all sanctified folks, you know I'm telling the truth, right? Yeah. 
So they threw him overboard. They, they made a vow. They made a sacrifice to God. And God appointed a great fish to, follow, to swallow up Jonah. Listen, Jonah was found to be guilty. But it brings me to my second point. One of the lessons that we can learn from Jonah is that repentance brings reprieve because our God is a God of second chances. Our God is a God of second chances. God, God, God brings a great fish to, to swallow up Jonah. Let me stop for a second. Because listen, we all face the storms of life, don't we? We do. We all face the storms of life. And sometimes the storms of life catch us completely by surprise. Often they're severe and seems like there's no relief in sight. But remember last week I talked about God allowing us to go through the fire so that he can free us of some of the things that hold us in bondage. Remember that? Well, listen, sometimes God designs storms to bring us to a point of repentance, to bring us to a point of obedience and dependence on him. And that's what happened to Jonah. For three days, Scripture says that he cried out to God in repentance from the belly of the well. Let me ask you a question. Are you in a storm right now? Are you in a storm right now? Let me ask you this. Is there something that God has asked you to give to him, to release, to relinquish that you haven't? Is there something that he's asked you to do that you've rebelled against him? The lesson that we can learn from Jonah is that if, if you find yourself in that category today, resistance is futile. And repentance, repenting of that thing brings reprieve. The third lesson we can learn from Jonah is that when God calls us to do something, we need to relay the message and leave the results to him. Chapter 3. Jonah is about to go to Nineveh. Fish spits him out, brother gets to getting, right? I mean, he's running. Gets to Nineveh and he arrives there to this big city. Now, I know at the end of chapter 12, it says that there were 120 that couldn't tell their, 120,000 that couldn't tell their left from their right. Right. And all that passage is saying is that these were children. There was one hundred and twenty thousand children. The city boasted of about six hundred thousand people or more. Right. So it would have taken Jonah about three days to cover the, the circumference of the city. But watch this now. By the end of the first day, the word had gotten around that the God of Israel was angry and that he had pronounced judgment on their city and that their punishment was imminent. His wrath was imminent. They had 40 days to repent. Look what happened. Repentance was widespread. The people began to repent with fasting and prayer, sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth, a sackcloth is, is, is a, a, a piece of material that's really not fit for wearing. It's rough. It rubs your skin. It's not like the silky clothes that you, that's comfortable. It's very, very uncomfortable. Ashes means that they realized that they were in a place of depravity. 
So they were crying out in repentance to God that God would have mercy on them. Then the word reaches the king in verse 6, and he repents in sackcloth and ashes and calls the entire city to a fast. No one eats anything. The animals aren't fed. They're not watered. And look at what it says in verse 10 of chapter 3. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them. And he did not do it. When God saw what they had done, how they had turned from their evil ways, he had compassion on them and did not destroy them. His mercy triumphed over his judgment. So God was no longer angry with Nineveh, but check this out, Joshua still was. Because remember, Joshua hated the Assyrians. So instead of rejoicing over this whole city of 600,000 people that had repented before the Lord, he gets angry. I'm about to step on some toes now. I stepped on mine plenty of times this week as I was studying this. He gets angry. So it brings me to the fourth and final lesson that we can learn from Jonah today. Remember that you, too, are a recipient of God's grace. Mm. Mm. What a short memory Jonah has. Here he was, the personal recipient of God's grace. God. God saved him from the storm. God, God, God saved him from certain death and rescued him from the belly of the great fish. He was given another chance. And now he's angry because God has shown mercy on his enemies. Harboring hatred and bitterness in your hearts towards others will always produce a negative effect on your life not theirs. Harboring hatred and bitterness makes life hard for you to endure. Harboring hatred and bitterness isolates you from others. It messes up your priorities and it places you in conflict with God. And you can find all of these aspects in verse, in, in chapter four. Harboring hatred and bitterness towards others causes you to forget that you too are recipients of God's grace. When we don't want to see people repent because we're angry at them, we have deep-seated hatred towards them. When we're not willing to bring the message of hope to others who have offended us or mistreated us in some way, we need to check our hearts. Scripture tells us that we're to guard our hearts with all diligence because out of our hearts flow the issues of life. If you are in a place in your life where the storms of life are raging for you, maybe God is trying to get your attention. Maybe there's a root of bitterness or maybe even deep-seated hatred in your life that God is trying to reveal to you. When we refuse to forgive others, we've forgotten God's mercy and grace that he's shown towards us. No matter what others have done to us, listen, 
It's our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to forgive. We have to leave the judgment to God. We have to leave the results to him no matter what. So I want to close with this today. How many of you have found yourself in Jonah in this story today? I don't have to see a hand. How many of you found yourself in this story today? You see, the, the story of Jonah is not necessarily about Jonah or about the great fish. It's not about Jonah's rebellion and, and, and his displeasure about going to Nineveh and preaching the message of repentance. The story of Jonah is about a compassionate God who is passionate about relationship. It's about a faithful father who wants to see redemption come to everyone. That's the message of Jonah. His passion is for all people in this world that he created. He cares just as much about the righteous as he does those who are lost and the wicked who reject him. Matthew chapter 18, verse 12, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. And he says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and, and one of them has gone astray? Does he leave the ninety nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? Yes, he does. James, you can come up. And if he finds it, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of the little ones should perish. God is passionate about relationship with all humanity. So God is passionate for all people, and God wants us to share in his passion, family. He wants us to share in his passion for the lost. See, just like Jonah had to learn the, the message of mercy, just as he had to learn that, that the grace of God is, is neither given nor withheld based on whether or not you are deserving or undeserving, we have to learn the same lesson. We have to put into practice the very thing that God wants us to see from this story. And that is, the grace and the mercy and the love of God is everlasting and it is new every single day. Why don't you stand with me?